we enter the Easter season. And the Easter season is more than Easter. The Easter season on the church calendar is that period of time. It's 50 days, actually, between Easter Sunday and what we refer to as Pentecost Sunday. A 50-day period. Actually, the Christian faith in its earliest days, not knowing it was probably another faith, just born of Judaism, actually conscripted, enlisted uh, this season, this season of harvest from its Jewish forebears. Uh, it enlisted the day of Pentecost as a holiday that had been celebrated by the Jewish family for hundreds and hundreds of years. Pentecost originally was just the 50 days that fell after the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. It was their way of saying the celebration on the other side was so fraught with adrenaline and nerves that we needed a space and 50 days of reflection has given us the ability to now to truly celebrate and so that was the original effort of Pentecost. Well, in the early church, this 50-day period was a period of reflection on the passion of Christ, the Paschal season it's also called. It's not only called Easter season, but it's called the Paschal season or Pascha from the Hebrew word that has to do with the lamb and, and Passover. But it was a season when the church looked back and reflected on the fullness of what the resurrection meant. Paul said as much in 1 Corinthians 15 when he tried to encapsulate or just kind of synopsize what was kind of the essential Christian message. In, in the earliest days of the church, Paul said the real essential message is, and this was to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter, he said that, that Christ lived, of course, but he said also the good news is composed of not only his life but his death. And interestingly, he said the good news is composed of his burial and his resurrection. And then he added a piece that a lot of people look over, but it actually was the majority piece in terms of the amount of words used. He said, and then Christ was seen. And it's that seen part that I just, I want to think a little bit about with you today. And what it means in a modern perspective, and certainly even what it meant historically for them, probably more than they knew, and even now more than we knew, know what it means post-resurrection to see Christ. The death, the burial, the resurrection, we often say, but Paul said he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and he was seen. This season, this 50-day season, um, in, in accordance with the, the New Testament story, after the resurrection, Paul said Christ was seen for 40 days. Um, the writer Luke in the book of Acts in the first chapter said also there was this 40-day period. The additional 10 days was the 10 days after the ascension when the disciples went to Jerusalem and waited for the Holy Spirit to come to them. They didn't know what that looked like. Uh, they really were waiting for Jesus to return to them and perhaps the Holy Spirit and Jesus returning were exactly the same thing, ultimately they realized. But there was, a, there was the cross, there was the Good Friday, the Saturday, and then the Resurrection Sunday, and then this period of 40 days, and at the end of the 40 days of being seen, there was the ascension when he took them out to the Mount of Olives and he ascended into the heavens, and they stood there gazing, and the angels appeared and said, why are you standing here gawking? Go to Jerusalem and wait there. 
this Jesus who you've seen go away, interestingly said, in like manner is going to come back. So that's one of the reasons why the church has always appropriated that text to being there is some kind of a bodily return of Jesus that's going to happen in the by and by. The more I read that text and the more I listen to what the angel said, when the angel said, go to Jerusalem, this same Jesus that you've seen go away in like manner is going to return, the more I'm convinced that a few days later at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, that was exactly the moment that the angels were referring to. You say, well, what about the like manner? Well, that calls into question our perception, doesn't it? Uh, what do we perceive as like manner? I mean, if he went away bodily, that means he has to return bodily, right? If he went up into the clouds, that means he has to come down from the clouds or it's not like manner. Well, maybe not. Maybe the manner is less to do about physicality and phys the things we see physically and more about metaphysics and more about spirituality and the manner in which he went and which he came. We'll come back to that. But the 40-day period and then I suppose even the 10-day period when they were there at Jerusalem waiting on the return of Christ, that period for them was a period of incredible reframing. Everything they had known about Jesus had been turned upside down on its head. The resurrection certainly meant he was back, but he was back in ways that they could not imagine. So this was a season not simply of recapturing an old Jesus or an old perception of Jesus or experience of Jesus or understanding of Jesus. This was a season not simply of recapturing the old. It was a, it was a season of reorienting to something that in, in one way was very much the same, but in many other ways was quite different. So the Easter season or the Paschal season, is, as it's called, this seven-week period leading up to Pentecost is a season of reorientation. It's a season when we, when we know that Good Friday's losses have been restored. I mean, that's what Easter's about. We bring the lament and the sorrow of the Good Fridays of our life and on Easter we celebrate that it's not over. We celebrate that there's new life. The Easter season says that Easter is not enough though. It's not enough that Good Friday's losses are technically restored. But we have to face the reality that Easter's resurrection often Easter's resurrection often restores what was lost in ways that we don't know how to handle ways that we don't know how to frame. Uh, Nina, I'll, I'll give you a very, just to take the esoteric and get as plain as I can uh, to help with this, because I know this can be somewhat esoteric. On the way in to church this morning, Nina said, what's your message about today? And I said, it's about that period of time that the disciples lived with Jesus after the resurrection. All, 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 automatically I started losing an 11 year old but I told her I said you remember he died on Friday he was resurrected on Sunday but the Bible kind of makes a big deal out of the fact that after he was resurrected he didn't go automatically back to heaven he stayed with them for 40 days and he kind of blew their mind over and over and over again and they were glad he was back and yet they were confused at how he was back I said, you get what I'm saying? And she said, kind of. And I said, 
Well, you know, the death of Jesus really reminds us of all the deaths in our life. And I said, when I say deaths in our life, I don't just mean the big death of, you know, when we quit breathing. I mean the little deaths along the way that feel pretty big themselves. And these little deaths take away what we know and they make our hearts hurt. And then Easter, at the heart of what we believe as Christians, Easter is, Easter is always saying that no pain, no loss is so severe that it can't be overcome, that love won't overcome it. But sometimes when Jesus comes back, sometime when our life comes back to us, it comes back to us. See, this is the Christ. This is where the Christ is bigger than the man Jesus. There is a consciousness. There is an archetype. There is a reality here that John 1 said was here before the beginning of the world. It was the logos. It was the plan. And this is what I was trying to describe to her. I said, when our life is restored, sometimes it doesn't come back exactly like it was. And I said, that's like a family like ours who goes through a divorce. You lose something very dear to you. But all the components, resurrection, Easter Sunday says all the components still have breath and life. And it's different now. But it can still be good. And that's what Jesus was saying in that 40-day period. You got to let go of the way it was. But that doesn't mean it's over. It simply means it's going to be different and new. And guess what? Different and new can be good again. And she said, can I stay in service and listen? And I said, you done got it. Ain't no sense in making yourself miserable with the other folk for 40 minutes. <laughs> the New Testament model the Paschal cycle that I was trying to explain to an 11-year-old girl in the reality of her life is that tragedy and loss always yield to resurrection and life. Pain and sorrow have to ultimately, that moral arc of the universe that King and the sages talked about, even though sometimes our eyes can be so filled with tears that it makes it look like it's bending the other way through the prism of pain, the reality is new life, listen to me, new life always comes. But it often comes with caveats of adjustment, right? What was lost the 40 days after the resurrection is not just a historic recollection that we memorize, it actually is an imprint. It is a, it is a cycle of wisdom, not imposed upon us, or not simply to be recollected in our memory, but it is something that we live with those earliest disciples every day of our life. And that 40-day period that we're in now, or 50-day period that we're in now, is simply saying what was lost is not going to stay lost forever, but when it appears, it's going to appear in different forms. And even after it reappears in different forms, it's going to blink and flitter a little bit. It's going to appear and it's going to disappear. Because that 40-day period wasn't even constant for them. He would appear and then he would disappear. 
And about the time they would lock back into him and think that they had him again, that level of attachment that he was trying to teach them to let go of, he would give them just a taste of new life and then he would take it. So the 40 days that we say they saw him, the 40 days that we call the 40 days of appearances, read the stories. They are also 40 days of disappearances. But the appearances and disappearances were so close together, it's kind of like walking down the lit hallway. When the light goes off, you can continue walking, not because the light's on, but the light's on in your memory. And enough was imprinted in your memory when the light was on that you can walk a little ways through the darkness. That's what the 40 days is like. You live, and again, move Jesus from a historical figure alone, which he certainly was, to a consciousness and an archetype that First John tries to describe him as that has been here from the beginning and will be here forever. And, and look at the ways that we relate to the Christ in our life. That we relate to creation and the gift of life. The disciples were with Jesus. They framed him. They understood him. They sunk the talons of their understanding deep into him. And they had a wonderful plan for his life. And then he went and blew it. Anybody ever been there in life? It's all laid out. And then somebody, generally we either blame that on God or ourselves, maybe other people, but somehow it gets blown. That period that the disciples, the gospels show the disciples with Jesus, that is a period of immature holding. And by immature, I, I don't cast that in the pejorative, but it's all we can do at that period of our life. It's the only way we can understand. So there is always a period of immature holding. Good Friday in this thing called the Paschal Cycle. As we reflect on Good Friday, Good Friday says that immature holding is almost always fo followed by tearing and loss. Richard Rohr describes it as the first third of life you build a castle. First half of life you build a castle and then the castle gets torn down. And then that mid period of life is about all of our efforts to put Humpty Dumpty and the castle back together again. But finally wisdom sinks in and you quit trying to rebuild the castle and you sort through the rubble and you find the beauty of home and you build yourself and God and a few others a humble cottage to live in comfortably. Good Friday is about tearing and loss. Good Friday is about the immature holding of our life that we would never let go of, that we would never give up. Generally life and pain and suffering and circumstances have a way of opening our hands and tearing it from us. Silent Saturday in the Paschal Cycle is about this issue that I talked about last week, uh, our Easter message. On Silent Saturday and the first part of Sunday morning before the resurrection, after the death and before the resurrection, it's are you going to be frantically trying to restore the old? Are you going to be trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together? Are you going to do what the disciples did and, and, and what many do and that's just run from it and act like it doesn't exist? Just get back to a 10-hour day as fast as you can? Or are you going to do what the women did, especially Mary Magdalene? Are you going to go to the place of the pain and are you going to tend? Are you going to run from the pain or are you going to tend to the pain? 
Don't you see the wisdom of Scripture how it's so much more than a historical fact that we regurgitate in some sense of orthodoxy? This is not the story of a few people who lived 2,000 years ago. This is the story of every human who has ever lived. And then Resurrection Sunday is about those moments in our life when hope is renewed, when life is restored. But it's not full life, it's just breath. You're still on the hospital table, but the heart is beating again. Life hasn't come back together. It's not completely reframed, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Hope is renewed. And then the 40 days are about reframing and maturing. And then at the end of the 40 days of reframing and maturing, see, it doesn't even end there. He was seen, and then at the end of all the seeing... Jesus tells his disciples, hey, meet me for one more grand sighting. And he takes them out to the Mount of Olives at the end of the 40 days. And as he's standing there, he looks at them who desperately have wanted to cast all of their hopes and dreams, responsibilities and opportunities onto this heroic religious figure, which is one of the dangers of religion. We cast all of our divinity onto another. We cast all of our hopes and responsibilities on another because we find it much easier to worship an ideal and a hero than to live out the ideal that has been ruminating in us forever. It takes less courage to worship a hero than it does to live out the hero's journey. And so Jesus, knowing that, takes them out to the mountain and he looks at them and he doesn't say... Worship me. He looks at them and he says, I'm giving you power. All the power that was given me, I'm giving you. Go. Actualize. Become the body of Christ that you've always been. I'm going to give you power to walk on serpents. I'm going to give you all the power that you have idealized and projected onto me that you so are enamored with me for. I'm going to give it all to you. And they looked at him. The Bible literally says some of them worshipped and some of them doubted and they were all afraid. Because this is a terrifying moment when your religious figure is about to wean you. When your religious hero is about to put you on. And the Bible says, after telling them that they had everything that he had had and that he had transferred it, it was in them. He told them, he said, now go into the world. Go into the dark, scary world. Just take off. Go to the ends of it. Explore it. Actualize it. It's yours. And, and they looked at him and they said, where are you going? And, and, and the beautiful story is that Jesus just began lifting away from them going in the opposite direction of them. And they could not bear it because that's not what we want. We, we, we want our heroic figures to stay and we want to forever you know, keep the, the safety of the training wheels and the nearness of that one that we've become so dependent on. And yet Jesus that day did what every good religious leader does if they get a hold of their own ego and that is Drew, he left them. And this one who said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, left them. But he didn't leave them in a forsaking way.
He left them knowing who they were. They didn't understand it. They even stood there gazing into the heavens. They just could not let go. And as they stood there gazing into the heavens, angels had to come and tell them. In the story, the angels came. I mean, what a story. We've all lived this. Angels had to come to them and essentially say, I know you've been hearing this a lot lately, but let go. Move on. Why are you standing here gazing? Jesus is not a megalomaniac who needs to be gazed at, gawked at, and worshipped. Jesus is one who has ever been trying to bring the Christ to you so that you would understand it's in you. Now let him go. Because this same Jesus that you've seen go away is going to be enlivened again before too long. The same Jesus, the same Christ is going to come alive in ways that you can't imagine. And so the angels went to Jerusalem and they fully expected the same pair of sandals, the same robe, the same look. He was going to come back down just like he came out of the grave. But he didn't. The Bible said they were sitting there in an upper room. I mean, just a few weeks before, they were sitting in a room and he walked through the wall, held out his hands and said, it's me. So they are there. Because if he did it that way once, he's got to do it that way again, right? So they were in that same room. May have been the exact room where they were hiding from fear, waiting on this incredible water walker, this dead razor, the guy that came back from, waiting on him to walk through and blow their minds again. And as they were waiting, a sound came from heaven, not from the door. A sound came from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And those who were looking horizontally now looked with limited sight upward. The sound came from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like fire setting on their heads. And all of a sudden they were all filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that Acts 2 said fell from heaven. And all of a sudden they had this incredible rush of capacity and opportunity and responsibility and power. And, and, and in the next chapter they're walking around and Peter and John come to the temple to worship and they see a guy there who's lame and the guy says, do you guys have a few coins for me? And they looked at him and said, we don't have money but we do have something such as we have, we give. And all of a sudden they had this incredible power inside of them that David, they felt like they could give. I mean, back in the old story when they were immaturely holding, anybody that had a need, they ran to Jesus, got him as quickly as they could. But now all of a sudden they have that power. You see what the story's saying? They had that power and they begin to try to frame theologically and in, in in a Ptolemaic universe where there was a first heaven and a second heaven and then a third heaven where God lived and the domain of the dead and Satan and the underworld was down there where everything was physical and geographically located, they framed it as best they could. Jesus went away to heaven. Somehow there was a transformation and he came back in the power of the Spirit and we spoke in languages we didn't know and we saw incredible things and there was this heavenly externalized transfer. 
And now they said, we're the body of Christ. And the same power that raised him from the dead dwells in us. Holy mackerel. What do we do with that? So Pentecost and the Paschal Cycle is about when the old comes back to us. As I was trying to tell Nina this morning, it comes back to us new. And not worse, but better and unpredictable and now we have to let go of the grief of what was and the clinging and the attachment. And we, as Augustine said, even the divine can't give the clenched fist. So somehow life has to open us up to the Pentecost. Good Fridays and resurrections have to open us up where we say, okay, I'm not going to control this anymore. Let life come to me as it will. But in recent years and centuries, as we've moved from a Ptolemaic universe where everything is vertical and, 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 and physicalized, we, we've reflected that Jesus said in Luke 17, which is the companion text to Acts, written by the same author, Luke and Acts. At the end of Luke, Jesus says something that none of the other gospel writers capture. Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, well, he was actually talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He said, do you know where the kingdom of heaven actually is? And of course they did. They knew where the kingdom was. It was out there and up there, right? The kingdom of heaven was coming in time. It's chronologically distant from us. And it was geographically distant, spatially different. It was up there. And Jesus looked at them and said, no, no, no. The kingdom of heaven is not out there and it's not up there he pointed to them and he said, it's in there. The heavenlies, the other, Jesus said, it's actually inside of you. So it's interesting to me that the author who says, when Jesus came back, the spirit fell from heaven, is the same author that just had Jesus say, and the kingdom of heaven is within you. So if the spirit fell from heaven and the heavens are within you, then where did the spirit fall from? This was not an externalized invasion. This was simply a dropping down into consciousness. See? This is why Jesus went away. To take the spatial out of it. But even his going away was a little confusing because he went up. And that, to them, reinforced how he had to come down. But the kingdom of heaven is within you, he said, and the spirit fell from heaven. So what happened on the day of Pentecost was not a foreign invasion from the third heavens of Ptolemy's universe. What happened was the kingdom of heaven is among us and it's in us and it's not out there. It is timeless and it is non-spatial. And when we finally open our eyes, that's what the 40 days are about. Living with a resurrected Christ, living with a consciousness that is continually opening our eyes, we finally realize he doesn't have to come back on a white horse or with a trumpet. He's never been away. What really needs to happen is from the heavens within, dropping down into our consciousness is the reality of who we are. No wonder then, Paul would say, you know where we are? In, in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul said, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Well, of course we are. And Elon Musk doesn't have to take you there. The space shuttle doesn't have to take you there. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places, Paul said. Where? Right here. Right here.
That's why the scriptures now all begin to kind of come together. These things that used to confuse us, now all of a sudden the stars begin to line up. And I remember Malachi and some of the older prophets saying that there were windows in heaven. And that every now and then the windows of heaven could open and abundance could come down on us. And then I remember the writer of Proverbs saying that the windows of the soul are the eyes. And Jesus said the soul is the seat of the heavens. If Jesus said the soul is the seat of the heavens, and if Malachi said there are windows in heaven that can open, and the writer of Proverbs said the windows of that soul, of that heavenly space, are the eyes, then no wonder post-resurrection we had to spend some time seeing. Because it doesn't get imposed upon us, but little by little it drops down into our consciousness the reality of what all of this is actually saying. The Easter season is about the opening and closing of the windows of heaven. The Easter season is about the opening and closing and opening and closing of our eyes. Remember, Paul said the good news is he was seeing. Luke 24 said of the Emmaus-bound disciples that their eyes were opened. And when their eyes were opened, their soul was opened. And when their soul was opened, the heavens were opened and everything that was in them released. So the Easter season, we should be asking ourselves, are our eyes open? Are the windows of heaven open? And we should be asking the questions, if our eyes are not opened, what closes our eyes? And if our eyes are closed, what, what encounter with a risen Christ, what encounter with that reality can open our eyes? It's interesting to me, as I was reflecting on this this week and I was thinking about the season of seeing, the season of, of dealing with our closed eyes, our closed souls that feel like we have shut off heaven to us. When I think about the sightings in that 40-day season, I mentioned some of them last week, but just a few of them. What closes our eyes to the resurrected Christ? Mary Magdalene was the first person. See if you are not Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was the first person to meet the risen Christ and when she met him, she stood in front of him and she said, Where have you put Jesus? Now she's standing in the presence of Jesus, full resurrection, Chris. But the good news is not just that Christ rose, because it's really not good news till you see it, right? So she's not experiencing good news even though she's in the presence of resurrection. And she looks at him and the Bible says she thought he was a gardener because her eyes were messed up. So the question is, why were her eyes messed up? 
She looked at him and said, I know you're a gardener. I know you've been here. Where did you put the Jesus I've lost? And she could not see him. And the thing that had closed her eyes, do you see it? Was grief. Of all the people who went back to their lives, she loved Jesus perhaps the most. Because she was the one who went to the grave and said, I can't let him go. And her eyes were so filled with tears. And I just want to say this, in the story of sightings, there are people, even today, 2,000 years later, it's the same story. Grief has so consumed you that you can't see life. As Emily Dickinson said, the wound has grown so large in you until your whole life has fallen into it. Many grief has a way of keeping us from resurrection. But Jesus touches the grief and he touched it so delicately, beautifully and gently. He looked at her in her grief and he touched her with his voice. He said, Mary. And when he said Mary, the Bible said it was as though scales fell from her eyes. She looked up at him and she said, Rabboni. Oh, for those moments in life when people paralyzed by grief and loss meet the tender Christ voice and have the grief healed until they can see again. Grief is a big deal that closes our eyes, Drew. I think about Thomas. Thomas was in the presence of the resurrected Christ and he didn't believe and he was not healed until he saw. Jesus literally had to show the print in his side and hold out his hands and when Thomas touched he said, oh my Lord and my God. Why was Thomas incapable? What was the window closing, heavens closing, eye-closing, faith-closing pain for Thomas. It was doubt, existential doubt. Our church is full of people who experience deep existential doubt. Our church has been for 14 years a haven for people who have stopped believing. I loved it this week when somebody in our congregation said on Facebook, I don't believe anymore, and somebody else sent back and said, yes, you do. You don't believe the same things, but you believe enough that you're still in community. You believe enough that you're bothered by your lack of belief. That's a belief. You're still here. Existential doubt is a biggie. Existential doubt can close your eyes. You can get so lost in philosophy and esoteric thinking and get your head so in the sky and so in the navel gazing that you become paralysis. You, you achieve the paralysis of analysis and you're paralyzed. And there are folk in this room right now who are not seeing and existential doubt has got you. Thomas is your patron saint. There's others like the Emmaus bound disciples. I mean, think about it. Listen to their story. It's our story. They're walking down the road. And they said, we thought this was the guy. We thought everything we've been waiting on for centuries, we've been waiting on our whole lives personally. We thought he was the guy. We thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. 
And all of a sudden, Jesus walks up to them. And the Bible said their eyes were holding. Their eyes were fixed. They literally couldn't see Jesus. You know who they are? They're a little 11-year-old girl who is so disappointed at the way things turned out instead of the way they were supposed to turn out that you just can't see. Disappointment is a big deal, folk. Disappointment in life. When the job doesn't work out, the relationship doesn't work out, you're not where you wanted to be financially, you haven't traveled the world yet, it just, you, you didn't think you would be here right now, did you? Disappointment has a way of so clouding our eyes that even when a resurrected Christ walks up beside us, all we do with Him is lament the fact that we have lost Jesus. Anybody disappointed with life? Anybody thought it'd be better by now? Anybody think you'd have more in your 401k and have visited more continents by now? Anybody think your children would have grown up and been a little more balanced by now? And then he, the resurrected Christ sits on a seashore and a guy named Peter sees him, strips off his clothes, jumps out of the boat and swims and perches himself beside a fire on the shore. And Peter can't look at him because literally a few nights before Jesus looked at them and said, you're all going to be so scared, you're going to leave me, you're going to abandon me. Judas won't be the only one. And Peter stood up and said, not me. I do not have the capacity for failure that these guys have. I'm a cut above, cut from a different cloth. He even had the audacity to look around so unself-aware. Talk about the first half of life. He looked around and he said, though all of these, Roy, he literally looked at them and not only did he say, I won't do this, he said, I can totally get how they would. But I'm telling you, I won't. And though every one of them deny you, I will die for you tonight. And Jesus said, poor, unself-aware man, poor, egoic, insecure man, poor first stage of life man before the rooster crows the second time you will have turned and ran cussing me all the way and a few hours later a woman at a campfire says are you one of his no crowd gathers you we think we saw you with him I know what you're talking about the heat turns up and they said, no, you are one of the guys. You're the guy that cut the guy's ear off. And, and he backed up and said, blankety blank blank. I don't know that blankety blank. And he ran. And as he was running, a rooster crowed. God, and his heart broke. Not me. And he, he was so close to achieving Judas's sin of despair because that was Judas's real sin it wasn't suicide it was despair it was when you put grace in a place of scarcity and say it can't the guy who thinks he could never fail is also the guy who thinks he could never be forgiving and both are narcissism
The person who thinks they could never be that person, Chris, is also the person that says you could never. And they go into the shadows. They leave the ego of arrogance and they fall into the shadows of despair. And the Bible said he wept bitterly. How did I do this? And he couldn't even get the courage to head back to the cross. He just stayed there in his pain. And now he's on the seashore a few days later and Jesus flips a fish, puts it on a leaf and hands it to him. And without even catching his gaze, Jesus whispers, Simon, lovest thou me more than these? And I believe the more than these were all of the other disciples. I don't think Jesus was talking about the fish. Jesus said, Simon, do you really love me than everybody else? Are you really cut from a different cloth? Are you really not the pound of flesh that every other human is? Are you really the special one? Do you really love me more than everybody else? And Simon mumbles, yes. And Jesus said, Simon, do you really love me more than these? Yes. I'm telling you, eyes can get closed by personal failure. Personal failure is so deep and so cutting, it strikes at the heart of your raging ego and it closes your eyes down. One more. The Bible says that the disciples, for fear that they would be next after his death, they went to a room and Lee, they locked the door and they hid themselves. And they could not experience resurrection because fear has a way of closing your eyes. So the point of this is the Christ that they saw in those 40 days was more than a man named Jesus. The Christ they saw, Mary had to see herself. Thomas had to see himself. The ten had to see themselves. Peter had to see himself. The Christ is not just the second person of the Trinity who ascends and descends. It is so much bigger than that. The Christ is when Mary sees her grief. The Christ is when Thomas sees his doubt. The Christ is when the Emmaus-bound disciples are taken headlong into their disappointment. The Christ is when Peter faces down his own failure and is welcome to the human family. The Christ is when Jesus walks through the wall and men see their fear. The Bible, and I close, does not simply give us history lessons. It gives us spiritual patterns and wisdom by which we may apply them to our life. And this Easter season, this, this 40 to 50 day period that we are going to journey on again for the 2000th year. It's not just a historical recollection, but it is a life-giving illustration of a cycle that is woven into the fabric of life. An incredible archaeologist, an incredible archaeologist by the name of Arlena Arianas. She's an archaeological anthropologist. She says that every culture in the world 
Every culture in the world actually carries within it the belief in a cycle of life. Christians call it the Paschal cycle. Others call it different things. But essentially, this good anthropologist said every indigenous culture and every human believes in a cycle that essentially says what is ultimately not integrated in you will be repeated through you. Richard Rohr says, whatever is not transformed in you will be transmitted by you. A wise sage years ago said, the young person who doesn't weep is a barbarian, but the old person who doesn't laugh is a fool. Every culture picks up on this reality of Christ and the consciousness dropping down into your soul through your eyes through how you see the world. And every culture knows that things like pain and wounding and sorrow and grief can so shut your eyes down that the windows of your soul become closed. But in our faith, we tell the story of a resurrected one. A resurrected one that doesn't get out of a grave and go back to a throne to position himself to be worshipped forever. But a resurrected one who gets out of the grave. And as far as I can tell, when he got out of the grave, he didn't do one miracle in the 40 days after. You know why? Because true resurrection and true seeing is not about miracles. But he went everywhere, Rod. Everywhere he went. David, everywhere he went. For that 40 days, he was touching grief and disappointment and hurt and failure and wounds. And after touching them and leading them to integrate the pain of their life, because as Mark Nepo says, if you don't integrate it, it will disintegrate you. And for 40 days in the Easter season, Jesus took people by the hand and he helped them integrate their pain so they didn't repeat it. And after helping them integrate their pain, he took them out to a mountain and looked at sufficiently healed people. Not completely because we never are, but with sufficiently healed people, Jesus looked at them and said, Go take dominion. Go live. Go be who you are. That is the story of Easter season. Can you say amen? And that is a story filled with hope. And for the next four weeks, what I just generally gave you, and a little 11-year-old girl in the car this morning, we're going to flesh out what it looks like to have our eyes opened on these matters that close us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Good God of heaven, thank you. Thank you for cycles that are so irrepressible, no matter the religion and no matter the culture, they find their way through to us. And thank you that in this Christian faith of ours, a story of hope and life and healing and love and abundance has come to us 
through a story of a man named Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters now and I pray for myself that we would learn how to let go of what was. That we would learn to let go of the Jesus we knew and the Christ we felt like we owned only to open us to a level of Christ consciousness that is more and deeper and richer and wiser than we could have ever imagined. Restore to us those things that failure and grief and wounds and pains and disappointments have taken away. Restore to us until finally we call these grievances gifts. And we know, as Richard Rohr said, that everything actually does belong. Move us from a resurrection into a full life of resurrection. From an incident and a moment and an epiphany to a life of abundance and consciousness. Heal our eyes, sweet Christ, we pray. And it's in that same name we call. And God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Go, be good to one another, and open your eyes this week.